Hello, welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg BNA tax and accounting podcast where we discuss everything involving tax, from the courts, the IRS, or Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Matthew Benningfield, and I'm excited you're here with us today. Hello, welcome to Talking Tax at Bloomberg BNA. My name is Andrea Ben-Yosef, and I am in the tax division at Bloomberg, and we are here with Lisa Starjeski to talk about the new partnership audit rules and proposed regulations. Lisa is a shareholder in the tax section of Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney, where her practice focuses on several areas of transactional tax law, including corporate and pass-through taxation and real estate. Lisa has written several BNA portfolios, including number 714, which is Partnerships, Allocation of Liabilities, and Basis Rules, number 565, which is Installment Sales, and number 550, which are At-Risk Rules. She serves at the chair of the Bloomberg BNA Path-Through Entities Advisory Board. So Lisa, welcome. Thank you. So let's just get right into it. What is the most important thing for practitioners to know about these new partnership audit rules and proposed regulations? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Andrea, for allowing me to be here today and talk with you about this really important subject. Um, Let me give you a little bit of background on the rules and then jump into that question. So we got these rules as part of the Bipartisan Budget Act back in 2015. Um, and the rules have introduced a new, what I refer to and many refer to as a centralized audit regime for all entities that are taxed as partnerships. And under this new regime, unless a partnership is able to elect out and affirmatively makes that election, the default rule is that the audit, adjustment, assessment, and collection occurs at the entity level, not at the individual level, not at the investor owner level, at the entity level. So the new rules significantly change the partnership audit process and quite possibly, depending on how you navigate them, could change the amount of tax liability that's ultimately paid, the person's bearing the economic consequence of that liability. Um, So it's dramatic change in many respects. The new rules are effective for audits of tax returns that are filed for taxable years that begin on or after 2018. So when an entity tax as a partnership files a return after January 1, that return could be subject to these rules and they're going to have to make elections and make decisions with respect to that return under these rules. There is also an early opt-in. We haven't seen very many of those and for good reason because there's still a lot of confusion as to how these rules are supposed to be applied as we're going to talk about today. So when the rules first came out, they contained arguably more questions than answers. Um, There was a lot of of information out there, but not a lot of um, good guidance on how you're supposed to apply this new regime. And so in 2016, in December of 2016, Congress introduced a Tax Technical Corrections Act. It, however, has not passed, and so it's still kind of hanging out there. Um, There's some question as to whether or not it will be reintroduced and whether or not it will pass. Um, And then in January of 2016, the IRS issued proposed regs. They were withdrawn and then they were reissued in June. And so here we are, June of 2017. And we have now the act and we have the proposed regs and we still have questions. Um, So I think it's also important to, to say at the beginning here that it's been a while since a partnership development or change has garnered so much attention as these new audit rules have. And it's for good reason. I think, you know, partnership tax is already a complex area of tax law. 
Um, but if there's one thing we thought we knew, it was that partnerships don't pay tax. It was that the entity doesn't pay tax. And guess what? Now it could and it will under this new regime unless the partnership is able to opt out or unless it makes other elections within the regime. So the rules are complex, they're tricky, and they're vastly different from what practitioners and their clients have been working with in the audit space up to now. So that's just a little background. And then you asked, you know, what is the most important thing for a practitioner uh, to know about the rules and the regs? And honestly, there are so many important things to know about them that I think a good answer to that question is the most important thing to know is that they exist and that they affect all entities, taxes, partnerships. And that may seem like a simple thing, but it's not. All entities, taxes, partnerships, have to do something with these rules. They have to make decisions. Even if the decision is to elect out of them, that's a new decision. It has to be made. It has to be affirmatively elected on their tax return. So there's change no matter what, no matter how big the partnership is, no matter how many partners, no matter what types of partners, whether it's an LLC, a partnership, or other entity tax as a partnership. So that's a very important thing to know up front. We have these new rules and they're affecting every entity tax as a partnership. I also think it's really important for practitioners to realize that there are several new decision points with respect to these rules. There are decisions that are going to have to be made that simply don't exist now. Decisions about whether to elect out, decisions about whether and to what extent modification procedures should be used, and we're going to talk more about that when there's an imputed underpayment. There is opportunity for the, the partnership to modify it. But there are a lot of decisions. What type of modification should you request? There is an election to push out a liability from the partnership back to the partners who were partners during the reviewed year, which by the way, when I say reviewed year throughout this, it means um, the year that has been audited or the year for which the partnership has filed an AAR, an administrative adjustment request. So there's this push-out election, and believe me, there's a lot to think about with respect to whether or not to elect it. And those are just a few of the decision points. There are a lot of new decisions to be made. So that's another thing I think is really important for all practitioners to know and to, and to learn more about. Okay, thank you, Lisa. That is a lot of information. <laughs> I think people are going to be making a lot of new decisions in the coming, coming year. So what is new in these regs that was not in the Act? A lot. A lot is new. There were many, many clarifying points in the proposed regs, um, and because there was such a need for clarification across the board, but there are also significant new concepts in the proposed regs. I am not going to attempt to talk about all of them, but there are a few that I want to highlight. So one is that the proposed regs introduced grouping when it comes to partnership adjustments. So in the context of the audit, the IRS is going to be um, figuring out what the imputed underpayment is, and in doing that is going to be making adjustments to partnership items. And the proposed regs introduced a grouping of different types of adjustments. So there are four groups under the proposed regs. There's a reallocation grouping, and that would be adjustments that reallocate items among partners. So instead of this share of depreciation, you got a different share of depreciation, so yours went up and someone else's went down, and that's a reallocation um, adjustment. There is a credit group, so that's where adjustments to items that are claimed or could be claimed as credits will go. Then there's a creditable expenditure group, which has to do with adjustments to creditable expenditures. There's not a lot of guidance on that grouping. That's reserved for later. And then there's a residual grouping, so pretty much everything else goes into that group. 
With respect to the reallocation group and the residual group, there are then several steps in the proposed regulations that apply to calculate what is referred to as the netted partnership adjustment. Essentially, each of the adjustments in, in the groups or subgroups are netted, and then there is what a final netted partnership adjustment. Very important to note here that in the reallocation grouping, no netting is allowed. In other words, if there is an increase in depreciation and a decrease in depreciation, it is only the net positive adjustment that matters for purposes of computing the imputed underpayment. So those two adjustments, those kind of offsetting adjustments, if you will, get put in two different subgroups so that they cannot be netted. All right. So then after we have our netted partnership adjustment, you multiply that by the highest rate of federal income tax in effect for the reviewed year under either Section 1 or Section 11. And then um, you would net the adjustments in your credit group and either increase or decrease the number based on that adjustment. And then you look at what you end up with. And if you have a net positive adjustment, there's your imputed underpayment. If you have a net non-positive adjustment, then you have an adjustment that does not result in an imputed underpayment um, under these new rules. So this process, the detail in that process, the grouping in that process, that's all new in the proposed regulations. So in addition to that, the proposed regs introduce the concept of specific imputed underpayments and the availability of a push-out election to less than all of the reviewed year partners. In other words, there could be a specific underpayment that essentially has to do with one or more partners, but not all, and the partnership may elect to just push that out and not the remaining adjustment, which is referred to as the general imputed underpayment. So if you have an adjustment, let's say you had a partnership that had capital gain and ordinary income in a given taxable year, and that taxable year is audited, and the IRS says, well, you should have had more capital gain and more ordinary income. But it happens to be that all of the capital gain in that year was specially allocated to one partner. They can take that capital gain adjustment, create a specific imputed underpayment with respect to that adjustment, and the partnership can elect or not elect to push that out only to that one partner. And then the rest of it, the adjustment to ordinary income, could be the general imputed underpayment that is then allocated to all of the partners and pushed out to all of the partners if that election is made. So that's new, the whole idea that you could have more than one imputed underpayment, you could have these specific underpayments is new. The proposed regs also added additional methods of modification. Once the imputed underpayment has been calculated, the partnership has several methods of modifying the amount of that underpayment. And the proposed regs added four additional methods um, to their arsenal, if you will. In addition to all of that change, the proposed regs provided that a partnership could request a type of modification that it didn't specifically describe, so it left that open, it gave some flexibility there, and it will allow the IRS to determine whether that modification is accurate, whether it's appropriate. And then the last change I'll talk about, or new uh, concept, is incredibly important, and that is that the proposed regs added the concept of a safe harbor amount and an interest safe harbor amount to the push-out election. So the partnership is required to make a push-out election, if it's going to make one, within 45 days of the date that the IRS uh, mails the uh, notice of final partnership adjustment. And the proposed regs provide that the partnership then must furnish statements to the reviewed year partners no later than 60 days after the date the partnership adjustments become finally determined. There is a lot of information that has to be on that statement. The partner's share of items as originally reported for the reviewed year, 
the partner's share of partnership adjustments as determined under these new rules, any modifications with respect to the reviewed year partner, the reviewed year partner's share of amounts that may be attributable to adjustments to the partnership's tax attributes for all the intervening years, because the reviewed year could be you know, several years before the adjustment year, the reviewed year partner's share of penalties, additions to tax, um, additional amounts owed, it's a lot of information. It's also very complicated when those reviewed year partners get that push-out statement, they have to figure out what do they have to pay? And they have to figure out their additional tax, not only in the reviewed year, but in any other intervening year, and then pay all of that in the adjustment year. As an alternative, under the proposed regs, the push-out statement is also required to provide to the reviewed year partners a safe harbor amount and an interest safe harbor amount. And it was added as a concept to simplify this process by giving the reviewed year partners an opportunity to avoid all that calculation of the correction amounts, the correction amount for the reviewed year, the correction amount for the intervening years. Instead of doing that, they can pay the safe harbor amount. So Lisa, what do you get the most questions about? You know, right now I would say I get the most questions about the partnership representative. The concept of a partnership representative is new to these rules. We have a tax matters partner now, and we're gonna have a, a partnership representative, but the two are very, very different. The partnership representative under the new rules has unfettered authority to bind the partnership and the partners. The partnership and the partners have no rights to notice, to participation. They really can't be very involved at all in the process. So it's a process they're not involved in, and yet this partnership representative is able to bind them throughout the process to a lot of very important decisions and conclusions and tax liability. So there's a lot of questions from clients about well, who should the partnership representative be? Uh, what kind of protections do you need in the partnership agreement to make sure that if you're not the partnership representative, you're being notified if you wanna be, um, that decisions really maybe can't be made without your approval? Um, there's a lot of, of unknowns with respect to how this is really going to work, and there's a lot of concern about it, both from the side of partners who aren't the partnership representative and from the partner or non-partner who's being asked to fulfill that role because it's a great deal of responsibility, and as you can imagine, there's risk involved. So should there be indemnification provisions in the partnership agreement? Should there be protections for the partnership representative, which from this point forward, I'm just going to call the PR for simplicity's sake. Um, so... I would say I get a lot of questions about that, and there's a lot of uh, thought that needs to be put to that with respect to drafting um, new agreements as well as amending existing agreements. So where is there still a need for guidance? Many, many places is the answer to that. Um, we got a lot of guidance in the proposed regs. Um, they're detailed and they're um, lengthy, and that's great. But with that guidance came more questions, because as you can imagine, when you know, when you have proposed regs and new provisions in those regs, that begged more questions with respect to how all that was going to work. Um, there are still lots of questions that remain unanswered. The AICPA actually wrote a letter in August, um, a comment letter with respect to the proposed regs. And if you ever if you glance at that, you can see, I mean, it's question after question. Well, what, what about this? Can you clarify this? And they're good questions and they're thoughtful. And um, so there is, there's a lot that we still need to understand. Um, some of the bigger pieces that we we're still looking for guidance on are um, whether tiered entities can push out. You know, can you push out beyond just the one tier? Because as you can imagine, many structures involve several tiers of ownership, of pass-through ownership. So if you push out 
and your partner is also a partnership, can that partnership then push out? Right now, that's an unknown. Um, the uh, blue book basically says no, but the regulations do not specifically say no. I think that um, there is a tendency right now on the part of Treasury and the IRS to say no because they think that's going to further complicate the process, and it's understandable. But they have asked for comments, um, and if they get comments in a way in which this could be administratively worked out such that it isn't unduly burdensome, certainly practitioners and clients want the option to continue to push out through tiers of ownership. There's also a great deal of um, information lacking when it comes to the effect of all of this on partners' basis, partnerships' basis, capital accounts at both the partner and partnership level. Um, what happens with all of these um, items when there's an imputed underpayment, when there's a push out? Um, if, if something changes back in the reviewed year, as you can imagine, it can have a lot of effect on things that happen from that time to the, to the present, to the, to the adjustment year. And there is not a lot of guidance yet on the effect of the payment, for instance, by a partnership of an imputed underpayment on all of the uh, basis and capital account. What happens with what happens if a partner sells their interest between the reviewed year and the adjustment year, and their basis should have been different? You know, how do how do you account for that? What happens to new partners that come in? How are they affected? Can they go back and recalculate a 743B adjustment? 734B adjustments might need to be recalculated. There is just a, there are a lot of questions unanswered. The IRS Treasury knows this. They have reserved sections of the regs for guidance on those kinds of effects. So what might practitioners have missed in all of this? You know, I think that the way I'm going to answer that is to say, what you might miss is that there is just so much here to get in front of and to be proactive about. There are so many traps for the unwary in these rules and in these regulations. Um, some of them are just very detailed, but it's you have to be detail-oriented as you read through this and as you think about how to address them and how to educate your clients about them. Um, as, ex as an example, you know, a partnership, if a partnership's going to elect out or an entity taxes a partnership, they have to do that on a timely filed tax return. So a late tax return means you can't elect out. Um, just, you know, it's a, it's a small point, but it's a very important point. On a related note, if you elect out, these procedures don't apply to you. So does that mean you don't have to designate a partnership representative? Presumably, that's what it means. It's not 100% clear. But we think that's what it means. But is it wise not to designate a partnership representative? Because the IRS can come back and tell you your election out is invalid. And it has no time frame within which it has to do that. So it could be when you're audited and you don't have a partnership representative. And it's telling you it's invalid. And the IRS says you're, the election out is invalid. You're stuck with the rules. Who's your partnership representative? The IRS can designate one for you in that circumstance. So, you know, one one thing kind of can lead to another, and it's just one of these things you have to understand that, you have to know that, you have to think about that. So, in many cases, you know, I would suggest that if you're going to elect out, you also just designate a partnership representative and, you know, just be safe and do that. Um, a partnership representative designation for one tax year doesn't carry over. Again, a little detail, but if you designate a partnership representative in 2018 and you don't in 2019, the designation in 2018 is irrelevant. If your partnership agreement designates a partnership representative, which is what we're doing now, that's also irrelevant. The IRS isn't going to look to that. They're not going to use that. 
They're going to say you don't have a partnership representative for 2019 and give you a chance to remedy. And if you don't remedy, you're going to, they're going to designate a partnership representative. So every single year, there has to be that designation. It doesn't carry over. There are a lot of rules in the proposed regs about uh, revocation of partnership representatives. It is very difficult to revoke that designation. It is very different than what we have now with the tax matters partner where you can really revoke at any time and reassign that position. You can't do that with a partnership representative. Um, limited circumstances under which you can revoke. Um, and if a, the IRS has designated a representative for you, you can't revoke without their consent. So again, a lot of just technical rules, but things that are very important, and that could come back to be a real problem if you don't know that upfront, if you don't understand how this works from the very beginning. Um, I think there's also a lot to think about and talk about with respect to partners and conflict and how this all plays out when you have issues that come up and people that leave partnerships. You know, you have a partnership representative that has a falling out with another partner and leaves under less than friendly circumstances. You have no right to revoke under those circumstances. That person remains the partnership representative until and unless an event occurs that allows you to revoke, at which point you can revoke and then the revocation isn't effective for 30 days. And can that partnership representative bind you to anything in those 30 days? I'm not sure we know yet. Um, and that doesn't seem right. And that's yet another area where people are asking questions and saying, you know, look, we need to sew this up a little tighter because that doesn't make a lot of sense and that could cause a lot of issues. I think that the important thing here is that there are a lot of rules in the proposed regs, um, details in the proposed regs that could easily be overlooked um, but that are very important. And I just focused on the ones related to the partnership representative, and there are more of those. So imagine over all of the concepts in the regs, how many of these places there are, how many of these very important points there are that need to be focused on. So after all of this, and this is a lot of information to digest, what should practitioners do now to prepare for application of these new rules? I think that the best thing that practitioners can do now is to study the rules and educate their current clients and new clients with respect to their application. Um, think about how you're gonna sit down with a client and explain to them what this change looks like. Explain to them the difference between a tax matters partner and a partnership representative. Explain to them that they could be in a situation where the entity itself could, be, um, could have a tax liability that it has to pay at the entity level. Uh, explain briefly the idea of a push-out election. What is it? But really, um, educate them about what needs to change in their agreements. Most practitioners at this point, when I think all practitioners at this point, when they're drafting new agreements, are drafting for these new rules. And many are also going to current clients who have existing agreements and beginning to talk to them about opening that agreement and amending that agreement to deal with these new rules. Because they have to have some provisions in place that address the rules. If, if they do nothing else but designate a partnership representative in the agreement so that at least they don't have to make that decision every year, or to be as detailed as putting all kinds of provisions in the agreement about the responsibilities of that PR and how they want the PR to navigate the process as they go through an audit. I think that drafting is what most people are talking about right now. There are a lot of different strategies. There's a minimalist strategy where there's almost nothing in some agreements that I see where maybe there's a, a PR designated and that's it. Or maybe it just says that someone has the right to designate the PR. There are agreements I've seen where there's very detailed coverage of these rules and every step of the way what the PR is allowed to do, not allowed do, to do, 
what kind of approval rights are necessary for any actions taken by the PR. So there is a lot of leeway here with respect to how you handle these in an agreement. I'd like to, you know, kind of finish up by just kind of reading a list of some questions to think about as you're drafting, um, some of which I've talked about and some of which I, I haven't. So with respect to the partnership representative, um, should the agreement appoint that representative? Should it provide that the company will appoint the representative? And how could the, how would that happen? By majority vote, um, the member manager, again, a lot of leeway there. Under what circumstances could the PR be removed or replaced? What are the responsibilities of the PR to the other partners? Are there affirmative requirements to notify partners of developments throughout the audit process? What kinds of developments? Material developments? What's a material development, <laughs> right? Everyone might have a different um, answer to that. Should the agreement limit the PR's authority to act in any way, like to extend the statute of limitations, to enter into a settlement, to make the push-out election without some level of owner approval? Caveat. The IRS does not care what the agreement says. Any limitations on that authority in the agreement are irrelevant to whether or not the action of the partnership representative binds those partners in that partnership. This is really setting up the partners to have a cause of action, a contractual right. It has nothing to do with the PR's authority with respect to the IRS. Very important and important to explain to your client. You know, this might look like a protection and that's all well and good, but it doesn't mean that the IRS um, is going to look at you and say, oh, you're not bound by what this partnership representative did because your agreement says it needed a, you needed approval you know, to extend the statute of limitations. In fact, there's a specific example in the proposed regs where a partnership representative that in the agreement cannot extend the statute without approval extends the statute, and guess what? The statute's extended <laughs> as far as the IRS is concerned. Should the agreement uh, specifically require other owners to cooperate with the representative? There's a lot of times when this representative is going to need information in order to make elections, in order to push out, in order to modify an imputed underpayment. How is it going to get that information? Should the agreement specifically provide that the representative will be reimbursed for expenses? Is it authorized to expend company funds? That should be enumerated. What type of indemnification should you put in there for the partnership representative? Should there be disagreement down the line with respect to decisions that he or she made? With respect to the election out, is the partnership eligible to opt out? Should it opt out? Should it limit the type of entities that interest in the partnership can be transferred to so that it's able to elect out in the future? What informational requirements should be added to the agreement so that the opt out um, is available? Because again, a lot of information has to be sent to the IRS. With respect to modification, should modification of the imputed underpayment be required? Should partners be required to file amended returns to modify? Um, should the, the partnership representative be required to push out? How should those decisions be made? Who should be involved in those decisions? What if the partnership ends up paying the imputed underpayment? Should there be indemnification or reimbursement provisions so that the adjustment your partners don't end up paying a liability that really maybe had nothing to do with them? Maybe they weren't partners in the review here. What provisions should be in the agreement regarding how partnership adjustments are going to be allocated in the adjustment year? And the list goes on and on, as you can imagine, and on. And the more that you learn about these rules and the more that you think about these rules and all the different things that can happen, the more you think about, hmm, there's a lot we want to talk about up front. And up front is now. 
upfront is now, if you're drafting a new agreement, upfront is now to get these agreements modified, these existing agreements, because starting with a 28 return, some of this has to be in place and they have to be ready. Your clients have to be ready. So um, it's an important change. It's um, a sea change, um, as many have referred to it. Um, and um, I think the best thing that practitioners can do is, is get as educated as they can and educate their clients. Thank you, Lisa. This is a lot of information and all of it is very helpful. For people who want to hear more about this and read more about this, Lisa has written an article for us that was also published at the special report called The New Partnership Audit Rules, Proposed Answers to Tough Questions, which is available on bna.com. So thank you again, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Tax. Our podcast is one of many that Bloomberg BNA has to offer. Visit bna.com for all BBNA sponsored podcasts and make sure to follow Bloomberg BNA Tax on Twitter. We look forward to giving you more in depth analyses on the next episode of Talking Tax. Until then, signing off from Crystal City, I'm Matthew Benningfield.